So you want to work in healthcare, but you're not sure where to start. I'm Leah, your host of this podcast, and I'm bringing you the inside scoop on healthcare professions. From doctors to PAs to healthcare administrators and CRNAs, my goal is to let professionals tell their stories and give honest reviews of the careers they have chosen. So whether you're considering a job in healthcare or you simply have an interest in what we do, this show is for you. Welcome to the So You Want to Work in Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Leah, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Telev. He is an endovascular surgical neurologist, and he's located in the Phoenix metro area. After his residency in neurology, he actually did three fellowships, including a stroke fellowship, neuro ICU, and neuroendovascular. Um, he's been heavily on social media in the last year or so, trying to uh, promote cases and stroke awareness. So welcome, Dr. Teleb. Thank you for uh, having me, and yeah, looking forward to this uh, great podcast. And real quick, thank you for everyone who's already subscribed. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever uh, video or listening platform you're listening on. So let's get right into it. The first question I ask everybody is why medicine? Because the whole point of this podcast is to help people understand what we do better, but also guide students into what type of medicine they might want to go into, what form of healthcare. So, So what was it for you? That's a good question. So I've been asked this before, so this is not a new question, but it's it's funny because um, I think our memories um, change. <laughs> like you're like, oh, I think I went into medicine. Maybe I didn't go into medicine for this, you know, yeah. uh, but um, I went into medicine. Honestly, I was an engineer before um, uh, oh, wow. going to medical school. Yeah. And um, I just liked working with people and I knew that I was good at math and science. Um, and so then I, I volunteered at the hospital and then, um, I just like the interaction, you know, I'm a people person. So if you look at my personality assessment, there's something called disc, which is like, looks for dominance, influence, how steady you are, how compliant you are. And it divides it up between being an extrovert and people focused versus task focused. And I'm so people focused, right? That's just who I am, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's basically what led me to, to medicine. I'm like, I'm good at science and I'm, and I focused on people. Like that's what motivates me. So that's basically how I got into into medicine, you know, I said, this seems it'll work. And I have volunteered and I kind of fell in love with it. That's basically what happened. Awesome. So you were an engineer first. Where are you from originally? Well, um, my parents are from uh, Egypt, but I grew up in Northwest Wisconsin. Oh, okay. So yeah, so uh, from the Middle East, to the Midwest. And so, yeah, um, I came here, I think I was six years old or five, uh, lived in Chicago for a little bit. My dad was finishing his PhD. And then we moved to Northwest Wisconsin in a small city of 13,000 people. Wow. I want to ask before we move forward with your story, because a lot of people ask me, it's probably one of the most common questions I get why did I choose PA school over med school? Because I was also pre-med in undergrad. Um, So, so did you consider any other careers in healthcare or were you just like, I want to be a doctor? That's it. Let's go. Yeah. So it's funny you ask that because I was considering going to, to, to PA school as well. Oh, really? Yeah. For multiple reasons, you know, so I was an engineer. So, uh, you know, 
everything I'm like calculated. How many years? How much am I going to make? How much time is it? Like how much, like I made this entire spreadsheet. I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> so I was this close to going to PA school. Wow. Actually my, um, my, uh, one of my good friends, one of my best friends from, uh, from, from undergrad, um, I'm just going to call him out, Jay, Jay Parlay. So Jay and I, uh, we, we were both considering going to, to, to PA school. Yeah. Interesting. And I, and I don't know, I'll, I'll be honest. I said, you know what? I took my MCAT once. I said, I'm going to apply to medical school once. If I get in, great. If not, I think this may be a better option anyway. I guess I did consider it. I mean, it's the point where I made an entire spreadsheet about it and <laughs> looked at everything about it. Uh, so yeah, and I and I and I don't know why I ended up going into, into medicine because after you know, like going through through medical school. I mean, because now that I think about it, I probably would have been just as happy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, it's okay. I think that a lot of. PAs go into PA school because we want, obviously, like we want the patient interaction, like you were saying before. But I think people are, I'm trying to be real honest on this podcast. So I'm just going to say it. I didn't want to, at that point in my life, go forward with more testing, four years of med school, and then potentially, you know, up to seven years of residency, right? So for me, it was a lifestyle thing. And I liked the, uh, the way we can just move around if we want to. Yeah. But sometimes I find that I wish I had the final say, meaning like, I wish I had a little more autonomy and that might, that's the one reason why I, I think going to med school, becoming a physician, that might be the, the factor here for, for a lot of people is getting, getting to make the decisions and having the final say. And, you know, if you don't agree, like if I don't agree with the people above me, I, I have to just do what they say. Right. So, um, that would be maybe like one reason why I would have gone to med school over PA school, but I'm very happy with my decision overall. Yeah, no, I mean, the flexibility with being a PA, like being able to work anywhere, you know, probably taking yeah. less call, I'm, 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 I'm guessing, um, yeah. less lawsuits, I'm guessing as well. Yeah, knock on wood. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, there's so uh, yeah, so I see those those advantages as well. And your thing about making the the final decision. So I work with four NPs right now. At at at, at, at one time, um, our um, neurovascular stroke team had five NPs. Cool. I'm going to be honest. You know, they they may watch this. They really make a lot of the of of the decisions because they've been. I mean, we've had this program for nine and a half, almost ten years. And uh, our first, uh, the first nurse practitioner that worked with me, Anna, she's been there for eight years, and she was a neuro ICU nurse for like ten years. Oh and wow! So we really trust their their opinion, and it's in, and it's to the point where I feel like they do an amazing job. And how much I add is in limited cases. I would say in like five to ten percent of cases of if that. It depends on who you're working with, really. Totally. And, and and I pride myself and my team, the fact that we've had like nobody leave for that long in healthcare, that's kind of like, 
You know, it's, yeah. and I think it's because if you treat people with respect and you allow them to work at their highest intellectual ab- 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 ability, people realize when you're being genuine and you're allowing them to, to grow. It's kind of like, um, you have to challenge enough, but support enough, right? Because if there's too much challenge, then you're just asking me to do stuff. It's it's like the unreal. It's the unrealistic boss. If you're too supportive, then you're like, why why aren't you letting me rise up, right? It's that balance of support and challenge, right? right. And I think if you do it right, people just you know you allow people to shine. Yeah. And I honestly, I, I have been with my boss, the, my surgeon for nine years. So he's oh, amazing. Yeah. I guess I was just speaking from what other people have told me, but there are like, there have been a few times where I'm like, mm, maybe I would have done something differently, but he's, he's really great at like listening to my opinion and asking me my opinion, which is really cool. Uh, so it sounds like you're like that too, which is awesome. And, and it really is allowing your team to have a voice. It, it's better for the patient overall, because when people are afraid to speak up, we know that that's when bad things happen, right? Correct. Yeah. I mean, uh, you've seen that study, you know, surgical outcomes are better when there's a more open en- environment as opposed to a surgeon who's like, rah, 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 you know, and is yelling, you know, and it's funny. One of my, you know, I do something called case of the week. I've been doing it for over a year where I give some advice. I go over a case and one of them was talking ab- about that, how to use ev- everyone in the room. And, and part of it is I create psychological safety and I ha- always haven't been good at this, right? So we, we all have to work on ourselves. I create psychological safety. So I'm listening to the tech. I'm listening to the nurse. I'm listening to the anesthesiologist. I'm listening to to the uh, basically the device rep, right? Because they've been through 500 knee replacement surgeries and this may be only your 50th or 100th, right? And yeah. so like you have to take advantage of, you know, because everyone has a different pers- perspective and you can learn from, from everyone. So I think coming at it from that point of view, like what you said is absolutely true. I mean, um, um, and I've seen it multiple times. I mean, I've seen my uh, texts and, and cases say, hey, look, there's there's this. And I'm like, oh, thank you. And if you allow people to speak up, not only does it save you, but it saves the, the patient more importantly. Yeah, exactly. And it's the surgical texts, uh, I can't stress how amazing they are. And whenever a new fellow comes in and, and works with us, I always know when they're going to be good if they listen and take direction from the surgical tech, because mm. these techs have been doing this for, like you said, for years. Yep. And these are their first cases that they're doing almost on their own. Right. So it they're so crucial to the OR. Um, so just wanted to point that out. Okay. Why neuroendovascular surgery? Oh, that's- <laughs> it's a mouthful. <laughs> Yeah, or neuro IR, interventional neuroradiology. Okay. So, so this field, you know, it was started within the realms of um, interventional neuroradiology, but really lots of surgeons um, uh, have started to do this, so neurosurgeons and lots of ne- neurologists like myself. Um, and so really we decided to call the field neuroendovascular surgery, where basically it doesn't matter which background you come from, radiology, neurology, or neurosurgery, we're all one, one group, you know, and, and, okay. and we have our conference together and everything else. So why? That's a good question. So um, I'll start with why I went into neuro. 
into, into neurology in general. Um, and if it's getting too long, you can just, Hey, that's enough. Okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> no. So I was fascinated by the brain and how we perceive things. So as an, as an undergrad, I took a class called sensation and perception or the neurobiology of sensation and, and perception. And I was just fascinated by how our you know, our eyes process images, you know, how our ears can actually, you know, can tell the difference between pitch, right? And we have those little hairs and the, and the, and the circle canals. But then even like sensation when we touch, right? Two, two point dis- discrimination, vi- vibration, pain, temperature. And I'm just like, wow, you know, like, like the how all these senses work and even from a psychological point of view like having a growth mindset versus a set all these things you know and i was just fascinated by the brain it's who we are we're talking because because we have brains right i mean this is <laughs> it's the command center it it's makes important. us do everything right <laughs> and now with the mind body connection i was really in tune to that a really long time ago and now it's the thing you're like of course stress leads to more hypertension because that leads to whatever these like your cortisol hormone going up which will lead to you know and then we're like but that wasn't talked about right yeah so why neuro i i feel the the brain and then and the neurological system controls so much of who we are and people that have neurological disease were so devastated that really hurt like it really got to my heart like have you seen someone with stroke yeah where they where they can't understand, they can't talk. It's the number one cause of disability, both in the developed world. We have someone with Parkinson's that like can't walk, you know, you know, or they're having trouble, you know. And and I'm just like, wow, dude, like neurodiseases can be really bad. If you can prevent some of this or you can help some of these people, you know. Sorry. <laughs> no, don't be sorry. That was a wonderful explanation and the mind-body connection is so important. I remember years ago, I read that book by Dr. Sarno. Yeah. I think there are two books. There's one like Healing Back Pain, and then there's The Mind-Body Connection. And, you know, I think a lot of what he says is accurate. Uh, it, a little bit of it might be a stretch, but yeah. it's so important. There's definitely, obviously, a connection. And um, I, I think you're right. It's, it's, it is one of the most debilitating things, and not just physically, but but mentally too, had like having to overcome that. Tell me about how you got into the surgical part of it, the surgical side. That's, that's a good part. So neurology in the past, they, they used to say, well, 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 the neurologist just makes a, 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 a diagnosis. I mean, it was kind of sad. They used to say, diagnose and adios, like you have cer- uh, spinal cerebellar atrophy. Like what? You're like, yep, sorry, there's, there's nothing we can do. But that really changed. We have so many more epilepsy. So people that have seizures, we have way more epilepsy medications. We have epilepsy surgery, right? We have VNS, vagal nerve stimulator, right? And so, and then I'm like, wow, neuro is really changing. I'm like, but what's changing the most in neuro and what can I make the most? So it was basically stroke. I'm like, wow, their TPA, they started doing procedures to pull out clots for brain aneurysms. They were starting to do minimally invasive procedures where they take plastic tubes, go up to the brain, and put metal inside of the brain aneurysm and stops bleeding. I'm like neurovascular, you know, and neurological emergencies. That's where we're making the most 
impact. And so, um, you know, uh, after my rotation in the neuro ICU, and then I saw the neuro IR doctors doing this, I'm like, yeah, this is, I feel like I can make an impact there. And I, and I'm kind of lucky in the sense that I bet on neurovascular disease, like to make this big, this big impact. And it did, uh, because, you know, now we have stroke thrombectomy. What does that mean for our audience? Thrombectomy means you're just pulling out the, the thrombus or clot, right? And so now we can take these plastic tubes, go all the way from the neck. Well, actually from the groin or wrist, go all the way up through the neck to the brain, pull out the clot. And someone like, or move half their body are now coming back to, to, to life, right? That's and amazing. Before 2015, we had three trials in 2013. Remember, I started training in, in endovascular in 2012. Um, I started neurology residency in 2000, 2006. Yeah, I, I started residency. So in 2012, I'm just starting my endovascular fellowship. 2013, all three trials for stroke thrombectomy are negative. Like there's no benefit. I'm like, ah. But you know, but I'm like, no, 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 no. It's the trials. The trials were run wrong, but you know, we have to pick the patients that actually have a clot. We have to make sure the tissue is not dead. And once we got that laser precision, then all the other trials since have been positive. So in 2015, we had five trials that showed significant difference. I mean, it's so big, it's somewhere from 10 to 30% difference, meaning the number needed to treat could can range from anywhere from one in three to, to one in six or like one in, 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 in 10, right? But most of them were one in three to one in four. So you're talking about a 20, 25% difference in being completely functional at 90 days. So this was one of the biggest things to happen in medicine. So I just, you know, um, I guess I just got lucky that the field really advanced, you know. Yeah. And within brain aneurysms and brain bleeds as well, they have all these new devices where it used to be you you used to send a lot more people for open surgery because the aneurysm neck was wide. It was in a place. Now with these new devices, there's this something called a web, which is basically a little cage, which you can put inside the aneurysm and, and it just opens up. And it clots off like the aneurysm. And even if the neck is wide, you no longer have to do open surgery. So I feel like you make a lot of impact and you can reverse lots of disability. And it's, and it's, and it's a great feeling. Awesome. That's so interesting. I mean, you know, I, I'm glad you're explaining it this way because I'm an ortho. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I I need it explained, but no, it, it, it sounds awesome. It sounds really rewarding and for the patient, for you. So very cool. I do have an ortho story for you. Oh, go for it. (laughs) My first year as, um, as an attending, you know, uh, here, um, one of the uh, ortho patients, I think, um, I think they, they had a broken femur. They like had some sort of fixed fixation. And, and afterwards, the patient became hemiplegic, couldn't move their arm or leg, couldn't talk. And the orthopedic surgeon, she was like, oh, um, are you going to be able to help this person? Like, like, like no confidence. <laughs> like I can do anything. <laughs> You know, because, but I understand she trained in an era where there was nothing for stroke, right? Right. You know, 
Um, yeah. And, you know, and I was my like first year out. I'm like, I think we should take her for thrombectomy, uh, you know. So I did. I uh, took the patient, pulled, pulled, pulled out the clot. And the orthopedic surgeon, she, she comes in and she's like, how'd you do that? I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that's just the field now. We can actually help people with stroke. <laughs> oh my God. That's great. <laughs> oh, that's, a, that's funny. I love it. I mean, it really is amazing how far medicine has come just in the last 10 years. Incredible. Yeah, And I'm sure within, within orthopedic surgery as well. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I started 10, uh, 11 years ago was my first job. The protocols have changed so much since then. Like then most people would stay in the hospital like two nights, yep. maybe longer after a knee and a hip replacement. Now, like at least half of our patients are out the same day and the we've really like honed in on pain control, which is cool. And robotics is huge now with, oh, yeah, with that's hip right. and knee replacements. So it's changing a lot, but um, mostly for the better. So that's good. Now back to the, your schooling. You did a lot. You did a lot of years of school. So tell us real quick, um, how long was med school? How long was your residency and then your fellowships all in all? So, um, of course, you know, um, so I did like, like, like undergrad, um, I ended up doing undergrad five years and I did have a, uh, basically a, a pre-med year as well. And then medical school was four years and then neurology residency was four years and then neuro ICU and stroke was I did a combined two year, but it's supposed to be two and one. So another two years and then neuro IR, neuro endovascular was another two years. So total training after medical school was eight years plus medical school, four years. So 12 years after college. Wow. And in between undergrad and med school, you were an engineer. I was an engineer for for a little over two years. Yeah, I was an engineer and actually went back to Egypt to be an engineer. Oh, uh, no I worked way. on the national uh uh, pavement uh, system. Uh, yeah. So I was there for about seven months a year. Then I came back and I worked in Chicago, actually. I was a engineer mm. at, uh, a civil engineer at Baker Engineering. That's so interesting. You went back to Egypt. Very cool. I think it's really relatable. I think there's a lot of people that are switching careers into medicine, out of medicine, but into <laughs> medicine. And I think, I think a lot of people are going to relate to your story having, you know, been an engineer and doing like a full career switch. I think that's, it's really, it's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's really ambitious of you to do that. And it's so cool that you went through with it. Yeah. I don't know if I would have done it again now, knowing how long it took. Just, you're like, man, I could have been done a way long, a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you're doing good things. Very yeah, important yeah, things. Yeah. Can I ask, did you have to take out loans? Because again, this is a question I get all the time. Like, how did I pay for PA school? So how did, how did you manage the cost of med school? People from Menominee, Wisconsin don't have money. No, I'm just joking. No, I'm just joking. Yes. Um. I'm not sure anybody has money right now. Yeah, I know. That's true. That's true. But yeah, so yeah, so I did end up take, take, uh, taking out loans uh, for, okay, for it. In, in, in yeah. an undergrad, um, 
I was able to pay for my housing. And, you know, there was something called reciprocity between Wisconsin and Minnesota. So I got, I actually got to pay a lower rate than the Minnesota residents because I got to pay the Wisconsin residents <laughs> fee, which was, which was, which was pretty cheap. I will say, oh, God, I think it was maybe three to $5,000 a year. It was something. Oh, wow. It was pretty small. I was like, yeah, this is pretty good for a, for a big 10 school. And, you know, I think they were number one in the country in chemical engineering at the time. So I'm like, this is a pretty good deal. <laughs> yeah, definitely a good deal. Cool. So yeah, I had to take out a lot of loans. Luckily, I just got mine forgiven. So oh, very that's happy awesome. about that. I know. Did, so did, lucky. Did, did you do the uh, 10 year, right? Yeah. Is, isn't there something where if you work 10 years for a nonprofit, Yep, I did the. It's public service loan forgiveness. Public service loan forgiveness. That's what it's called. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you want to know how much debt I was in? If you're willing to share it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so of course, in in medical school um, and 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 residency in medical school, you really don't have time to work. And so, yeah. So I ended up taking, I think, over two hundred fifty thousand dollars when by the time I was done. Yeah, actually, I was the same for PA school, but it wasn't just PA school. I took out loans for undergrad as well. So, and I just decided to go to a really, really expensive undergrad school. So, yeah, that we we're about the same there, about two fifty. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of money. It's it's a lot of money, and then starting to pay it off after residency, after fellowships, when you know I was in in my late thirties when I started working. Yeah. You're like I'm 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 starting midlife. I'm starting my career. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen, if it wasn't for this program, I would have been paying loans for 35 35 years about probably. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah it's, it's a lot. And I wish they would figure something out to decrease the cost of med school or health professions, you know, it's, it's pretty crazy. Let's talk about your social media presence. You've been on social media a lot in the past year, and you also developed a tool to identify strokes or help identify strokes. Can can we talk about that? Yeah. So, um, so when these trials came out in, in, in 2015, um, some of my nurse practitioners and also the nurses are like, how do I, how do we identify these strokes that may benefit from stroke thrombectomy or some people call it stroke surgery. And so I was like, Hmm, what do we do? You know? And so I, um, I ended up coming up with this mnemonic called van. Right. And so I called it stroke van and van stands for vision, aphasia, and neglect. And I basically used it locally in order, basically as a quick mnemonic, you know, in order to help identify these patients that may benefit from stroke thrombectomy or stroke surgery. And then wow. from there, I did a pilot study and then everyone's like, Hey, you should teach this there and there. And so then I ended up rolling it out in multiple hospitals. I wrote a paper, they started using it in, in San Antonio and it just basically got, got, got bigger. So what I thought I'm like, how, how would a neurologist think? So I'm like, okay, if I'm doing an exam, when do I think this is likely a large vessel occlusion? And it's and it's this, it's what's called cortical symptoms or VAN, vision, aphasia, neglect. 
and it's pretty simple. And so all the other large vessel occlusion tools or massive stroke tools, we're looking at how severe is, is your weakness. Like, is, is your arm completely not moving at all? You know, is your face complete, you know, and you had to add up numbers, right? So it was quantitative, right? And what Van did, which was a complete departure from the entire field in the sense is I said, no, qualitative, baby. Look at the quality. You just look at the type of symptoms, right? And so all I had to do, you had to have any arm weakness at all, just a little bit of weakness, arm weakness. If you have no arm weakness, you're done. You know, you're like van negative. If you do have arm weakness, all you do is need any of those van symptoms. So vision, you either lost vision to one side or your eyes are forced over, right? You have a gaze preference. That's vision. Aphasia, as you know, is just the ability to understand and to make speech. So you have them follow two commands, close eyes, make fist, and then name two things, whatever, watch and pen, right? Right. And then, and if they, if they can't do that, then they're van positive because either they're something in vision or something in aphasia and neglect is when they ignore the left side of their body. That's a little bit harder to like test. And so that's where we had to do the most training, but basically it's usually with left-sided weakness. So your left side is weak. And then you, you, you will actually ignore, like you'll show them their arm. They're, they're like, whose arm is this? They're like yours. They neglect wow. or deny they're having really? a stroke. Yeah. Okay. Or or they'll get up, even though half their body can move, they'll like try to get up out of bed and fall because, you know, so they're basically ignoring or denying or neglecting the fact that something's happening on that side of the body. How we test it is relatively easy. We just say to touch them on their right left arm, they'll, they'll say left, touch them on the right arm, they'll, they'll say right. When you touch both sides with their eyes closed, they'll only tell you right. So they're neglecting the fact that you're touching the left side. And you can do that with vision as well. But we do touch because that's, that's easier. Yeah. That is so interesting. And then I made a website. I made a certification course uh, for, for, for an hour so people can go to the website. They can get certified. I made an app. So you can download the app. You can put in the van symptoms, and it'll tell you where in the brain. Is it an M1 clot? Is it a superior M2? Is it an inferior M2? Is it a, a PCA stroke based space off of the, of, of, of the van exam? Yeah. That's so innovative. So there is no score or there is a number score? There, there's no number score. It's like van. It's just qualitative. It's okay. van positive or van negative. Got it. Okay. Van positive, baby. It's a go. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. And what's cool about it. Oh, sorry. I have to add this. When we implemented this, we decreased the door to the endovascular suite, you know, uh, by 50%. That's a huge number. Yeah. So amazing. Uh, so you're just saving lives over here. Trying, trying. <laughs> Very cool. So how is this helping you? Are you are you getting you're getting the word out then obviously to your at least to your colleagues and people in the field on LinkedIn. Um, and you know, social media is so difficult now because it's there's so many people on it and it's hard to be different. But I think you're doing a really good job uh, of, of getting the word out about stroke, um, about van and um how do you manage with your job? I mean, you're, you're on call a lot, seems like. Almost, probably on, on average, every other day, yeah. So wow. I'm, I'm, how, I'm, how do you manage social media? 
<laughs> That's a good question. So one last thing. So, and I use Instagram really for locally. So all, you know, most of the physicians I work with locally, the nurses, the, the techs, everyone's on Instagram. So I use Instagram to basically raise the morale and education locally. I use LinkedIn for national and industry. And I use Twitter for, for my peers. So everyone has a different goal and right, different audience. It's, it's a different audience and it's yeah. really worked for stroke education locally. I mean, so when the nurses see these cases of the week or this great stroke outcome, it puts neuro on their mind. Right. And so now they're like, Patients van is, is 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 van positive, right? And so it 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 allows us to raise the local standards um, that that way. I, I I just have to say that. So how do I manage it? I I I don't. I really don't manage <laughs> most of my social media. So when I record a case of the week, it takes me less than five minutes. I'm, I'm, I'm not joking. I mean, like, That's I, great. <laughs> I do one, one take. I mean, um, uh, I wasn't very good at, um, presenting, um, and I worked on it a lot. I read this book called The Exceptional Presenter, um, and I got really good at, communicating ideas and uh, trying to get the message across in a simple manner. And so, because I had to work on it for so long. So I, I work with someone from, from the industry. He's, he's a device rep and we shoot lots of these t- together. That's a good way to manage your time. Yeah. I need that. Yeah. I've been doing everything on my own, but I, I, I need to, I need to outsource a little bit. I yes, think. exactly. <laughs> Let's get back to medicine. So my two favorite questions to ask on this podcast are, what do you love about your job and what do you hate about your job? Or what do you not love about your job? Yeah. So it, you don't have to answer the second question, but but I feel like most people have an answer for it. And I, this is because, you know, I feel like on social media, especially, we all we see is like, the good parts of our job, right? Like if we're promoting what we do on social media, we're like, it's great to be a PA. It's great to be a surgeon, you know, but I, I need to know what the challenges are, but first tell me what you love the most about your job. What's not to love? No, 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 no. I think, um, there's lots of things to love. I mean, I mean, again, that ability to take someone who's completely disabled and make them, basically you're reanimating them and bring them back to life. So the patient outcomes, good patient outcomes, I mean, that like hits hard, okay? Or sometimes in the neuro ICU when no one knows what's what's going on, you're like, yeah, that's an autoimmune encephalitis. And, you know, the, 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 the person is in coma and then they like wake up. Like that's amazing, right? That is good. Uh, working with nurses, working with techs, working with my NPs and PAs, that team approach. Oh, I love working with, with, with people. So that is awesome too, right? The innovation, you know, I love to innovate, to be part of a team, to advance the field. You know, I, I love that mental engagement, but also the, people aspect of it, right? So that's why I love medicine. So that's the good part. The things I don't like is the over-documentation, writing notes and calls. And I'm like, as an engineer, I'm like, medicine is, medicine is so inefficient. I would probably fire 90% of, of, of the business people in medicine. I'm like, no, so everything has to be automated. Like every, like protocol automation, automation done. Like a, a surgeon should just go do his surgery, 
do 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 research and 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 go home. That's it. I don't I don't need them writing five page notes. Right? <laughs> Sorry, right. I'm joking. No, but it's true. It's like we're spending so much of our time documenting and it sometimes takes away from patient care. And yep. It may, everything takes longer and we try to, to have templates and, and tools to make it go faster. But even then it's just every day I feel like there's something else we have to do or check or cover. And it, yeah, yes, I agree. It's probably the worst part of my job. That's too. probably the worst part, but you know, there's, there's ways to make it less painful too. You know, you can, you can look, look at it. Well, this is something that, that has to be done. You can, you know, I like see some of my NPs do, do, doing this. Hopefully if, if they watch this, I see them like making sure that the language is perfect, that like, you know, that the sequences in the ICU are perfect. And like they're, they're documentation is like beautiful that's just like if you're if you're gonna do it this is how you should do it you know like that ability to communicate so clearly through through the notes i mean so if you think about it like i'm i'm creating a communication piece of art yeah yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Especially now that those that patients get their get access to their notes Correct. right away, basically, right? And yeah. yeah, it's important to communicate it well. Um, but it's interesting too. I just interviewed Dr. Corey Callendine, the orthopedic surgeon, and he was telling me that there's now AI software that listens to your visit yep. and just creates a note for you, which AI scares me, but it's everywhere. And I feel like if that is accurate, that will be such an amazing time time saver. It'll help us take more time with patients and not worry about it. It, I got to try this out. Yeah. And, and I like it for documenting what you said, what, what they said. So then it's like, no, actually Dr. Tlaub did tell you there's 5% risk of death. Right. Like that's, mm-hmm. It's obvious, right? You may not document that, but everyone in the room heard it, right? Right. And so right. this is where I, I think it's helpful. But the thing I don't like about it, your thoughts, how does it get all of your thoughts? Like the reason why I'm doing this is because X, Y, and Z. And then another thing, like there's uh, the book Blink by Malcolm Gladwell talking about how experts make this, this, this decisions. There are some things that you, your decision you're making where your subconscious is processing and you don't know why. And then you have to go back. Oh, this is the, 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 the reason why. And so like, how do you document some of that as, 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 as well? You know, yeah. like this, this is what my thought process was. And so the note may, may feel generic at sometimes with AI. Um, and, and so I do think we're still going to have to be involved in some of that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, I like to, I use templates and then I kind of add in my own style, right? Yeah, because yeah. It, 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 I don't want to sound like a robot in my note. <laughs> and it's true. Yeah. I don't know how they're going to figure that out, but AI is crazy. So yeah, uh, the documentation probably, that's a common answer for when I ask this question, what's the worst part about the job? Now, is there anything you would have done differently in your path to becoming a neuroendovascular surgeon. Am I saying that right? Yeah. yeah, Or an interventional Interventional. uh, neuro guy. (laughs) Interventional neuro guy. (laughs) (laughs) Just, you know, he's, 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 he's a brain plumber doc. No, I'm just, 
<laughs> Perfect. Brain plumber. <laughs> you should change your Instagram handle to brain plumber. <laughs> so, um, no, man. I I think the more fellowships when 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 you when you uh, talent stack, the vision you see is is something different. Like now, you're seeing things from 360 degrees. Degree view, you see it from the ED, you see it in the ICU, you see it from the stroke doc, you see it from the endovascular or the the surgical side. So the more you do, I feel like you just get a better grasp of what's going on. I wouldn't change training from that point of view. The only thing I would change mental view, right? Mm. I would do it with more more smiles. Like everyone's like, really? You're you're always so happy. I'm like, no, man. The underlying stress. I didn't need any of that. Like, I, I, I think that's the one thing that I would have changed is I would have had a more relaxed attitude, you know, and a more okay. open. I was so competitive, you know. Um, that's the only thing that I probably would have changed. Um, um, I like that. Yeah. It's a good point. I think this, at least this country is becoming so much more in tune with mental health. And it's so important, especially when you're training to become a physician, a surgeon, PA, because I was, I was the same way. I just like had my blinders on and PA school is so intensive for that one year that you, there's no time for anything else. And I, I really stressed myself out. Like I, f- I felt like I lost a bunch of hair at the end oh, of the no. first year. I was like, Oh my God. But luckily I did take some time to work, uh, during PA school. I worked at a bar and it was really, really fun. Oh, nice. And I was lucky enough to just like pick up a shift here and there. And it was, it was so good because I, I always tell people like, you need to take time for yourself when you're training because if you don't, you're going to get burned out and and it's not going to help. You know, are you really going to get a better score on the test tomorrow if you if you stop studying an hour earlier and get an hour more sleep? Like probably not. You're probably going to do about the same and take time for yourself. Go out with your friends, you know go work out, whatever it is. It's so important to just like take yourself out of school for a few hours and just do whatever you need to do and be happy. That is, <laughs> that is great advice. I, I, I couldn't ag- agree with, with you more. Now I do take the mind body connection, um, much more serious now. I'm not sure if you saw my last, uh, one of my, uh, last, uh, posts, but it was my health journey. I've had seven surgeries. Yes, I saw it. Yeah. 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 Spine, right? Spine, and, uh, four knee, a foot surgery. Yeah. And you, you lost a bunch of weight, right? I you lost just a went bunch on of a weight. workout journey. Yeah. It's awesome. That's it. You know, YOLO. <laughs> <laughs> it's so important, though. If you don't feel good, it changes everything. I say uh, exercise is my medicine. I feel so different if I do not work out. But it just like sets up my whole day to be successful and I have more patience and we have patience for my patients. Um, and yeah, it's, it's so good. It is for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Last question. One piece of advice you think every student looking to become a neurologist or, um, go into the neuro IR field would need to know. One piece of advice. 
Yeah. Lots of people are intimidated by neuro, right? I mean, you, you took your neuroanatomy part and all the different cranial nerves and the spinal thalamic tract and the dorsal column and the spinal cord, all this stuff, right? I would say... Yes, I remember all of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, like, it's the most in- intimidating part, you know? Yeah, but it was fun. <laughs> yeah. But then I realized, no, 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 no. How you, how you look at it is you take a a basically a basic framework and then you add things to it. So I would say take a look at the big picture, then add things. That's that's my advice. For instance, if you look at every higher neurological being, whether it's a dog, mammal, lizards, everything, for all of us, we actually have the same structure. We have motor and processing in the front and sensory in the back. And that's how our spinal cord is. So now you're like, oh, yeah, you know, like, you know, so we have our ability to talk and the motor, the arms and everything towards the front, the sensory is towards the back. Vision is back here. Hearing is here. But that's how the spinal cord is, too. So if you think about it from like, let's look at the overlying archetype and then we add the muscles and, and tendons on. Let's let's get, at least get a skeleton. Once you have a skeleton, it's a lot easier to like add things. And so that's my like one, one, one piece of advice. Step back and see what the overall message is. And then you add the details later. Love it. Love it. All right. Well, I think this has been awesome. I do think our listeners and viewers are going to get so much out of this interview. Uh, where can they find you on social media? So um, you can find me on, on LinkedIn, Mohammed um, Taleb. On Twitter, it's uh, at Strokevan. Great. And then on, on Instagram, it's uh, Taleb, T-E-L-E-B underscore neurovascular. So I-G, Twitter, or, or LinkedIn. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, I don't know if there's, if there's anything else you want to add, go for it. But, um, my, my camera is actually about to die. So okay. I hope All right. it doesn't just turn off on you, but yeah. Thank you so much. I love that you're doing this like podcast. That's oh. so imp- impressive that you, you're, Thank you. I mean, it's such a good way for people to look into healthcare before going into healthcare, but also to see other colleagues and like what their like views are. So the last thing that I want to say is kudos to you and you're doing like an awesome job and, and, and thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for saying that. This has been great. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule. And um, I'm sure we'll see each other again, at least on social media. Go follow Dr. Taleb. I will put his links below in in the show notes and the video notes. And uh, yeah, thanks. Have a great day. This is the So You Want to Work in Healthcare podcast with new episodes every month. Don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date on the latest releases.